Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast, produced by me, Fraser McGrew, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision-making. I'm here with Chris Ragg, Nick Hare, and Tom Spence of Aleph Insights. And this week, we're discussing the blockage in the Suez Canal. Sounds like a digestion problem. It? <laughs> it does. Talk to us about this particular blockage, Nick, and why we would like to discuss it. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? It's, it's really good fun. I love this story. Uh, so this ship, I think, ship called the Ever Given, sailed up the Suez Canal, somehow veered off sideways and got stuck, thus mm. blocking um, what turns out, turns out the Suez Canal is quite a heavily used waterway. And um, and it was blocked for, you know, a, a week, I think, or, or so before they managed to unbung it. There's that brilliant photo of like a tiny little uh, earth mover trying to dig it out. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, look, we're all still here. We're all still alive. And the uh, I, I know that the waterways getting blocked is one of those things that Navy types like to worry about a lot. Um, you know, it would be utterly catastrophic if, you know, the Panama Canal closed or the Malacca Straits or Straits of Hormuz. Straits of Hormuz, Hormuz. yeah, that would yeah. be it. You know, if that goes if that goes down, that's it. You know, the Western economy, economy will be on its knees. Um, uh, but, you know, actually, OK, was it that costly? Was it as bad as we thought it was going to be, as people might have predicted, you know, one of the getting the Suez Canal bunged up? Um, more generally, do we tend... A lot of people will tell you that we don't think about low probability risks enough. But um, putting aside the probability, our, the, my question is, do we overestimate how bad it's going to be when things go wrong? Um, yeah, I mean, that's it, really. OK, that's the question. Are we are we actually a bit too you know pessimistic when it comes to looking at things that can go catastrophically wrong? Because actually, maybe they'll be all right. So one of the things maybe we want to talk about is this specific example. Um, can we do we ha are we in a position to immediately dismiss um, its impact and and say, well, actually, it's all fine. I guess we can you know we're all sitting here still with roofs over our heads and stuff. The world hasn't fallen apart. But is there any data there? Is there anything we can say that actually? this has been pretty bad. Um, anyone want to weigh in on that, Tom? Yeah, well, um, I think it was pretty bad. Um, as someone who used to work in the shipping industry, um, mm. I can confirm that a lot of my former colleagues were quite stressed by it. What did you um, do? What was your job in the shipping industry? He was a lobster fisherman. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, have you ever seen Deadliest Catch? Um, no, I, uh, I did a few different roles. I worked as an analyst and I also worked in operations as a shipping coordinator for a while. Mm. Mm. Um, okay, this, this is right up your street, this. It is. Right up your canal. Yeah. Very good. Um, but no, it was pretty bad. Um, you know, if you what take, does that mean? For what example, mean? Um, in Lebanon, mm. there were blackouts across the entire country because the power plants couldn't have fuel delivered to them because mm. the fuel that comes to those power plants was on a ship that was trying to get through the Suez Canal, but couldn't. We might not have seen much here because we've got a relatively resilient economy. And also, as a side point, a lot of the energy resources that come from the Middle East to Western Europe actually go around the, uh, the Cape anyway, rather than th okay. through Suez. If you look at ship tracking data, you can see that uh, you know maybe half of the Qatari 
liquid natural gas tankers actually go the long way around rather than through Suez. There's already some redundancy. Out of interest, why is that? A mixture of shipping costs. You know, it costs money to go through the Suez. So sometimes, Mm. if you're not uh, pressured for delivery dates, you might take the cheaper option and go the long way around. Okay. But also, Um, I guess, I mean, there must be some pressure of traffic, which means that it is no longer quicker to go through the Suez Canal. No, it's always quicker. Oh, okay. Um, But it's just a question of cost jamming it yes, <laughs> unless right. there's a ship jamming it and a hell of a traffic um, jam yeah um sorry i interrupted you there tom so you were you were sort of you were taking us through some of the effects go on yeah uh and similarly you had uh i think there was one example of a particular vessel that was stuck in the canal itself so not even in the waiting zone uh that was delivering a shipment of livestock uh, mm. i think southwards through the canal every single animal on board that vessel died really you know. good lord uh, it's quite hot in the suez canal it's quite um, a high impact for those animals then yeah and for whoever was hoping to receive a shipment of animals mm. um unless they were planning to eat them because actually then yeah. the work's been done for them i suspect i'm not sure they had refrigerators yeah. on board the oh, vessel okay. sadly um so you know i think it's a question of of resilience right and i think you know for a lot of Western European countries, the impacts weren't that bad. We're not necessarily that dependent on the Suez Canal. The closer you go to the canal, the more likely your shipping is to be dependent on it. And also the fewer alternative routes you'll be utilising as a standard. Mm. Um, I'd also say more generally, the Suez Canal is it's kind of a medium criticality, criticality choke point. So... Uh, a few years ago, Chatham House did a study on maritime choke points, particularly for mm. the food industry, for global mm. food. Um, and they basically categorized them into three three groups. One are the kind that it's inconvenient if there's uh, a blockage, if you can't transit these choke points, um, but you can go around them pretty easily without too much additional cost or time. So that's like the, the Straits of Dover, for example, or uh, the Strait of Malacca, you know, You've got alternative routes that you can use. The next is, you know, blockages that would be quite a big problem. So, for example, Suez, uh, or at the other end of the Red Sea, you have the Bab al-Mandeb, or you have the Panama Canal. However, there are other routes. You can get around these. Same goes for the Straits of Gibraltar, as long as Suez isn't blocked. Mm. Um, But the, the type that have the potentially highest impact are those where there are no waterways that you can you can use to get around a blockage and chris mentioned one earlier that is the straits of Hormuz, and oh. the turkish straits are another big issue there uh and these you know potentially so is that like have... the dardanelles the, the yeah into the... so it's right. it's both the dardanelles and the bosphorus uh mm. they form like two little mini choke points around the sea of marmara um and if, if you've worked in shipping, you'll know that they're a hassle even at the best of times because there's always fog which delays that you, you can get through, but you've, kinda, you've got to guess how long it's going to take a ship to get through the Dardanelles and, and the Bosphorus. Um, but essentially, these, unfortunately, both also are quite high-impact choke points because not only are they you know, unnavigable if they're blocked, uh, but they also are important for world trade. I mean, the Gulf of Hormuz, or the Straits of Hormuz, rather, um, are 
crucial for the world's oil production, right? About 18 million barrels of oil passed through the strait every day in 2020. Uh, for contrast, that is more than one and a half times the entire US crude oil production per day in 2020. Wow. Um, and if that all gets essentially locked into the the Persian Gulf, you're going to see some pretty big oil shocks around the world. You'll see many more examples of things like the blackouts I mentioned in Lebanon. Um, and you'll see price shocks significantly. Uh, for the Turkish Straits, you don't necessarily have the same problems with oil, but you do have big concerns around food supplies. So um, about... Uh, 12% of the global grain supply, uh, of all global exports of grain, that is, pass through the Turkish Straits. And if you look just at wheat, it's more than 20%. Wow, so, is that all coming from Ukraine? Yeah, from Ukraine and Russia, um, and kind of being the loaded in. in of the Soviet the, Union. Yeah, the sort of Sea of Azov, Crimean ports, that kind of place. Um, I, want, I want to stop you there for a moment, Tom, um, because... Um, that was super interesting, um, and I mean, if, if we and we don't want that, we've got to stop that and start <laughs> yeah. the boring stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if the question is how fragile are we, right? How fragile is, is our system? It seems to me the answer is very fragile. Um, maybe. Um, and and by the way, I've got a new phrase that I'm going to try and bandy about, um, which is medium criticality choke point. I like that one. Um, so yeah, that's my new phrase for the day. Um, yeah, so it's, it sounds like it was already categorised as just medium anyway, um, potentially what can go wrong, because I think, as you said, there's, there's alternatives, right? Um, yeah, but I, there are but some I have a question, though. But did the actual impact correspond to what forecasts had been made mm. of what the impact would be? Like, I mean, do, it, do, it, was anything that happened surprising? Was it surprising how quickly people adapted or was it surprising how difficult it was for people to do adapt or did we get it about right? Uh, I don't think anyone was particularly surprised by the impact after it happened, at least not in the shipping world. You know, mm. ship operators are used to having to redirect vessels um, as are traders. Um, so it wasn't out of the ordinary. It would have been a lot of work for them to do it because... You know, you don't normally have to redirect that many vessels at once. Um, but even at the beginning, you saw a mixture. Some vessels immediately turned to go the Cape route. Some thought, right, well, we'll wait it out here, see how long the blockage will take to clear, and started moving off later than that when they, you know, started assessing the risk differently. Um, and, you know, the, the price increases associated with, with delays, fueling costs, and so on, they're they're all known they're they're not, not i don't think anything surprised people mm. i guess um, so i guess that should mean that that will lend some credence to the you know the scarier end of the of the uh choke point scenarios um i mean if we if they were right about the impacts of um of, of suez Okay, so I want to get. Let's talk about the scary ones then. Uh, let's talk about the Strait of Hormuz because I, I, I. This is my question, really. Is is you know looking at the scarier end now? Assuming we can have a bit more confidence in those forecasts, um, is the scarier end, uh, you know, sc 
really scary or actually is it just scary you know in comparison to a normal day and in fact we'll be fine um i mean how bad would it be that's that's the question because I, I i i don't know i want to have a strong opinion that we're all being a little bit you know that people worry too much about these sorts of things um but i don't know i actually don't i don't have that strong opinion i, I genuinely don't know I, I sort of think it could be either way could be true mm. yeah yeah i mean i i i think that um one of the one of the ways we um overestimate the impact of these things is by looking at um the looking at what is prevented right so so if you look at the, the amount of grain you, you know that comes out of um uh the the former soviet union um or you look at the amount of um petroleum that comes out of the the gulf region and you go oh you know that's x percentage of of the um of the world's you know uh resource for for that thing um so that's going to have a that's going to have a major impact that means we get you know 20 percent less of of that particular thing but I, I i think what that sort of doesn't take into account is the absorption of that risk by society this uh, this idea of broader societal resilience right so you can't eat wheat you eat potatoes instead right um now and you can't i think eat as, bread you can just eat cake cake exactly <laughs> Which also, you know, happens to have cereal crops in it. But, you know, um, little did Marie Antoinette know. Um, so, yeah, the, but, but, you know, and if you don't have, um, you know, one source of fuel, uh, it might be very difficult to replace in, in our sort of, um, you know, current energy economy. It might be very difficult to replace um, petroleum. But there are other mechanisms like, you know, rationing and, um, you know, reducing energy use and, and so on. And I think, you know, um, like, you know, in, in, in the UK, we have had, um, you know, s s low level protests in sort of living memory about, you know, fuel oh, yeah, rationing the, and yeah, things. The, well, there was um, the there was the uh, the fuel protest well, in 2001 or something. Yeah, exactly. There was the yeah. Uh, big fuel protest. Um, so so we have had those kinds of things. But they yeah, the oil crisis in 1973, the, it, it, where, you know, you, you've got 25 percent global reduction in oil output because of the what OPEC decided to do. And, you know, we're all still here. Yeah. But 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 I think I think it's the fact that, um you know that society itself is able to adapt to shortages in a way that people forecasting things look at the status quo and and then they judge the impact based on you know uh, the effect on the status quo without realizing that we're very adaptive as as uh, you know organizationally and individually yeah it kind of reminds me of the you know of the sort of co cognitive adaptation which um uh, or, you know, the, the reverse, if you like, of the hedonic treadmill, you know, where people think the new TV is going to make their, make them blissfully happy. And it does for about a day. And then it just feels no different to watching your old TV. Um, and there's some evidence that the same thing works in reverse. And uh, there's a very famous study about uh, amputees and, you know, the extent to which they were they, they, they were unhappy, um, uh, you know, afterwards. But <clears throat> nothing like the extent of unhappiness that people predict they would have if mm -hmm. you know if they had to have one of their limbs amputated and and uh it's just a general you know it's a general sort of cognitive phenomenon and i which i suspect is associated with the fact that we have evolved to strongly avoid um things like that happening to us but when they do uh it is not adaptive to to you know 
uh, give up that, you know, we've adapted both to fear these things probably more than we need to, but also to adapt to them when when they happen. And I just wonder if, you know, societally, um, whether that's the case. I, I, and I, I also just partly have this. I know that there's there's just such a tendency towards doom and gloom. Um, certainly when I was in, you know, in the MOD, uh, a lot of futurists were all full of, oh, it's, you know, everything's getting worse and more dangerous and we're all more interconnected and more fragile. And, uh, you know, and, I, and and actually, when you look at the stats, everything's getting better by and large. Yeah. And, so and I, I think I don't know. Yeah. So I, I, I think that sort of um, that pessimism, uh, but the reverse side of it, the the. Um, the optimism that that people have about you know our ability to absorb things explains why you know we haven't built a second um Suez Canal I mean that would obviously be quite impractical but in 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 Panama you know there have been other sort of attempts to look at a, you know a Nicaraguan um uh, uh canal uh, and also sort of like a train system that spans uh, spans that part of the of the world um but they've you know they, they they've not invested in them and i i think you know partly that's because the cost of doing so is 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 massive you know i mean i, th- I think the it, it was sort of estimated at um you know between a thousand and five thousand lives lost in building the Suez Canal, you know, half a billion francs, and it doubled, you know, doubled its estimate uh, at the time it was built. Same with the Nicaragua, uh, um, with the Panama Canal, you know, that lots of lives were lost and a huge amount of money spent. You know, you know, that's what's what's coming. Um, but I think there's this sort of uh, feeling, you know, that well. If it does go wrong, we won't we won't build in the redundancy, which is obviously what you would do. Even though perhaps your rational estimates might suggest it is it would be worth doing, um, we don't do that because we rely on our ability to kind of make do in the event that that it does go does go wrong. Um, yeah, Tom, I want to bring you back in here. Anything anything to add at this at this point? Yeah, well, I wanted to add to Nick's point. I think with this kind of event that we're talking about it's quite easy to predict the first order effects you know the Suez canal closes you can predict shipping delays you can predict cost increases you can predict you know food wastage or spoilage that sort of thing but it's when you start getting to the second and third order effects that things like this become very hard to predict what is the impact of those cost increases on society what is the result of failure to deliver xyz shipments and how will it impact you know the wider world and i think that speaks to what nick was saying about how when you start doing that kind of thing it's easier to to kind of sell a picture of doom and gloom um you know no one's going to be that interested if you say actually we don't think it'll it'll happen it, you know it'll matter that much um but i think in either of those views there's not necessarily that much rigor in terms of uh, the forecasts that have been made okay okay yep so look i i feel we're kind of falling flat here somehow i i, I think the we... issue is that we don't have we've never had we've never tested civilization to destruction um so we don't really know i think we're what in it the takes. unknown yeah because i think there's two competing arguments here which are both quite interesting. One is the a kind of argument from induction where you say, look, we're still here, right? Chances are 
humans will carry on because you know uh, every uh, we've always done that in the past the probability that next year is going to be the last one has got to be considered very low but then there's the doomsday argument <clears throat> have you heard of that one it's basically saying that um assuming that humans are born in a random order hmm. uh, on average you were born uh, at the midway point so if you want an estimate of the total number of humans who will ever live then you essentially double the total number who've ever been born and that really only gives us a few years left because it won't take it doesn't take very long to to have more humans uh it, you know than than have ever been born um i feel like we're at the we're, we're kind of we've got a full almost like we have to fall back on arguments from priors because the sorts of scenarios which we think it would take to really destabilize civilization are things that necessarily have not happened yet so so i feel you know, it reminds me of that you know there was that nuclear um that that plane carrying a nuclear bomb that crashed uh in the i think in the 1950s or 60s it was just yeah. flying it was somewhere in you know midwest america and it just crashed in a field and when they inspected the bomb it turned out that something like four out of the five safeties were were disabled and um and so you know people sort of think well this was as close as we actually got to a nuclear bomb going off in the us but the thing is you don't know what other safety features you don't really know what other things would have had to happen because you never got that far and i guess i guess that's the problem that really we're saying you know we we all we know is is the things so far even the real things that seem like they're really bad haven't destroyed society so we don't really know where that limit of robustness is. And, you know, if you think um, that's, you know, a nuclear war might be might be, uh, uh, you know, pretty destructive thread style outcome civilization. But even then, I mean, I'm not 100 percent sure that a big nuclear war wouldn't. Yeah, we wouldn't just pick ourselves off, dust ourselves down and get cracking again. There'd be I, lots I of dust to dust off. Yeah, exactly. Nice uh, yeah. uh, glowing green dust. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's not test that hypothesis. Anyway. No, let's yeah. not um, try to yeah. experiment. Yeah. In that. Um, well, well, look, we need to, we need to draw things to a conclusion. Um, I don't have any questions, but I feel like I should have a good question for this. Um, I've, I've sort of got a bit of a question, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Um, which is that, um, you know, is is it um, is it worth preparing? for these these types of events because if you look at um what happened with covid covid19 you know mm. the the uk's national risk register uh the top risk of concern was uh, was pandemic influenza right which is not a million miles away from what happened i know it's slightly different and and so on but we we were already as prepared for covid19 i think as our government apparatus would have would have allowed us to under those those circumstances and yet it didn't really make much difference to how <laughs> how we were able to respond um so the, the question is is it is it worth preparing for these things or should we just rely on our adaptability tom so one thing i want to add here is that i think we've all looked at the big picture quite a lot here we've talked about adaptability we've talked about the whole of society but i want to draw everyone's attention to an incidence of supply chain collapse uh, from a few years ago uh, so i'm not sure if you remember the beast from the east the oh, yeah, 2018 that, that uh, cold snap cold wind. Um, yeah so the beast from the east led to 17 deaths in the uk um in part that was exacerbated by the fact that not long before then 
the 40s pipeline system from the North Sea uh, going into Scotland had shut down because of a crack in the pipeline. Uh, that shutdown of the 40s pipeline system uh, meant that various gas companies could not provide gas in the required quantities to their customers, who were then unable to adequately heat their homes during the beast from the east. So, you know, ultimately, most people didn't see any disruption. But you know, there are articles throughout, particularly um, uh, customers who receive gas canisters to their homes, so off-grid homes, didn't have gas. So in the eyes of most people, you know, that supply chain uh, lack of resilience didn't really make much difference. But to some people, it could ultimately have meant the difference between life and death. So I think it's important to look both at the, the macro and the micro scale when we're talking about the impact. I, of this I was hoping thing. you were going to go on to say that one of those 17 people was working on a universal cure for coronaviruses <laughs> yeah. that would have been ready six months later <laughs> yeah. had they not died. And they hadn't um, written their notes possible. down. It yeah, was exactly. in their mind. Yeah. 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 But also inadvertently, you've just terrified me, Tom, because I have... I don't have on-grid gas. I'm not connected. So my gas is off-grid. So um, this is really bad news to me. I could have been a statistic, right? I could Isn't have, off-grid? You know. oh, hang on, off-grid is good, right? It sounded bad just then. It sounded really bad. Off-grid means you're fine. No, it was the off-grid. Off-grid customers were the ones who were most affected. A lot of them didn't oh, receive okay. their deliveries. Yeah. Well, I, but I'm I'm off-grid for my barbecue. I've got a gas barbecue, so I'm concerned that this might this if there was one of these cold snaps your, again, yeah. yeah, I might not be able to make delicious uh, burgers. Yeah, no, exactly. In the snow, um, well, look, I'd have to resort to to, yeah, to pan fried barbecue, to pan fried burgers. 20. Yeah, doesn't everyone else have barbecues on Christmas Day? <laughs> um, I, look, I think we've come to an end there. Um, anything anyone wants to add as a last moment thing at all? I'm going to take that as a no. All right, so we'll wrap up there. I feel like this is one of been one of those episodes where we've had a special guest. So we've had our special guest, Tom Spence, shipping expert and high <laughs> impact, scary things um, expert as well. So, but yeah, all right. So we'll stop there. Um, as always, thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts or suggestions for topics, uh, you can email us at podcast at We'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed the podcast, what should you do, Nick? Um, yes, uh, sorry, I wasn't ready for that. Uh, let me think of, th of a thematically appropriate response. Um, Sail full steam ahead into the like yeah. button. Yeah, why doesn't Chris say that? Ask Chris what to do. We know that's it, we've done it. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's what we'll um, So, thank you as always for listening. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Tom Spence, Nick Hare, and Chris Rag of Aleph Insights. Until next time, goodbye.